On today's podcast, we have Dr. Mark Adler. Mark hasn't had traditional route to Ryerson. In fact, he's had a faculty career that started elsewhere throughout this entire transition, for which I've got to witness a large portion of it. It's clear that he is dedicated to his students, dedicated to the chemistry community, and most importantly, he's a family guy. He has made some bold moves, but they've always paid off because he followed his heart. So please lean in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Mark Adler. All right, everybody, welcome back to the pod. Today we have a faculty member, special guest, somebody who has been a very welcome addition to our department, Dr. Mark Adler. Mark, welcome to the pod. Thanks, Brian. Mark, tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Ryerson and when you started. I am an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Chemistry and Biology. My, I have a research group we study mostly focused around organosilicon compounds, developing reagents and catalysts and new methods, and also uh, some new molecules that do cool stuff in various applications. So some biologically applied work as well in a couple of different areas. I've been in the department since 2017, fall of 2017. I joined as, as an LTF, and then in fall of 2018, I became tenure track assistant professor. And let's talk more about that because I like your I, I like your story and we'll we'll end with the story of how you came to Ryerson. But let's start from the beginning. So where is hometown for you? Home is San Diego, California. I was born it's- born there. My mom is Canadian though, so I have I have Canadian roots, but but I was born in America and spent my first eighteen years in San Diego. Awesome. And then you moved where to go to school? I went to Berkeley for undergraduate, so Northern California for undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Just, just up Berkeley. the hill from Oakland. Very, very, very different part of California, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Northern California. I mean, it's uh, yeah, very, very different kind of environment from Southern California for sure. Physically and like, you know, community wise. And then also physically too. Like we always joke when you see people walking around San Francisco with those fleeces that say like SF and have a picture of the Golden Gate Bridge on it. Um, that's someone who came to California thinking that it was like palm trees and beach. And they came to, you know, they went to the Golden Gate Bridge and like, oh man, it's cold up here. And they ended up having to buy one of those polices. Yeah, they, they were the ones that thought that they were going to San Diego, right? But the San Fran and That's San right. Diego are two very, very different places in California. Okay, so you went to That's Berkeley, right. and were you a good student when you were an undergrad? I was not a very good student, no, not in the beginning. I was, I was really not a very good student at all, actually. When I applied to graduate school, which was, um, I guess, beginning of my fourth year, I applied with a GPA of 2.3 which is a really low GPA. On a 4.0 scale, right? On a 4.0 scale, yeah. Particularly for someone who has ambitions of, you know, well, doing what I'm doing now, actually. Were you ever nervous that, like, with that kind of a GPA that you wouldn't get into graduate school? Oh, definitely. Definitely. No, I was very nervous. And, you know, I picked the places that I ended up applying were sort of from a range of different tiers because, you know, my grad student, who was my mentor, Chris Beaudry, who's now professor at Oregon State, you know, he advised me that, you know, he thought I, I, because of my research experience and because of my standardized test scores and stuff, he thought I would have a shot to get into some top tier universities. But because of my GPA, there'd be a lot of places that just ruled me out completely. And I really wanted to go to grad school. So I ended up applying to schools kind of all over the spectrum of, of requirements and sort of averages too. You So, I mean, we know what you're doing now and we know that that transition involved grad school. Did you always know what you wanted to be when you were a kid? When I was a kid? No. Yeah. When, when I was a kid, I mean, I, I liked, science. I guess I liked the idea of science. And as much as I understood what it was all about when I was a kid, I liked 
understanding things and sort of getting back to like first principles on as much as I possibly could, you know, just getting down to like just asking why, 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 and try to understand, you know, how things work and what they're all about. And so I was drawn to that part of science, but I know I didn't really, I don't have scientists in my family or anything that who, anybody who would have served as like a guide to go into that um, discipline. Yeah. When I was young, I, let's see, I wanted to be a bunch of different things when I was younger. And I'm wondering if I want to set myself up for you to make the same joke about me as you made the last time we talked. But one of the things <laughs> that I was thinking about being was a barber or a or potentially, I was thinking about being a mailman too, because in Southern California, being a mailman is kind of a cool job. You like drive around in the car in the sun, you listen to music, and I thought that sounded like a fun thing to do. Uh, but I, I always kind of, liked science, I guess. What kind of music would that mailman have been listening to in that car? Oh, he'd be listening to hip hop for sure. Hip hop or or indie rock. All right. Uh, those those are the two things that I mean, you know, assuming that I still end up being the same person I am today, those are the things I listen to. Yeah, and that's cool. Okay, so you moving forward as a, a into your graduate school, and and when did you realize? And you mentioned Chris Beaudry, but when did you realize that going to graduate school was something for you? You know, I I always when I was at Berkeley, I thought it was something I wanted to do just because I sort of had this sense like if I wanted to achieve, if I wanted to get to the levels of sort of like you know job levels, have you know don't not have an artificially low ceiling on what my career might achieve. I I thought I would need a higher degree, but I thought that I didn't actually know when I was in my first few years of undergraduate that, that people get stipends, they get paid for going to graduate school. And so my plan had always been go to undergrad, take some time off to work, become really, you know, completely sort of independent and self-sufficient so that I could support myself going through graduate school entirely and really be able to focus at the same time on graduate school. And then when I learned that graduate students actually get paid for going to school and doing research, then I said, okay, great. Then I'll just go directly into graduate school. Um, having yeah. such a bad GPA like, and thinking, you know, is this really going to be an option for me? You know, it, it wouldn't have been an option for me had I not joined a research group before my, my last year of undergraduate for a bunch of reasons. First, having that research experience was valuable, just getting prepared to go to grad school. And secondly, the training that I got in the lab, I learned a lot from. But thirdly, also being in the lab and doing hands-on research really changed my perspective on being a student. Like I was a bad student, mostly because I didn't care about learning, like becoming an expert in something. Like I liked my courses. I liked chemistry. I wanted to learn about it. And the things I found interesting, I read and learned about the things I found tedious. I didn't really spend much energy and time on, but when I got into research, I realized, you know, you really have, if you want to make an impact and contribute in a creative way and like make new things, you have to really understand what's been done and, and sort of the state of field or else, or else you can't advance it any further. And so yeah. with that idea in mind and Chris's guidance and, and really pushing me, that changed my trajectory completely. Perfect. Where did you end up for grad school? I went to Duke University, which is in North okay. Carolina. And so you went across the country. Was there any particular reason you went there? Well, a few reasons. You know, like I said, I applied to a few different places and Duke was among the best schools I got into. I got into some other schools as well that were maybe on paper ranked higher, but sort of same tier, same kind of class of place. And it's not like a top, top chemistry school. It's like a top 40 chemistry school in America, which is pretty good percentage wise. Like there's a lot of PhD programs. But so when I was deciding a school, you know, when I was applying, my criteria was I didn't really want to be in California, which seems silly in retrospect, but I wanted a different experience. So I only applied to schools outside of California. I didn't want to be in a big city. So I applied to places that were mostly university towns. And if I wasn't going to get into a very top chemistry program, I at least wanted to be at, 
at like an elite learning institution so that I would be around people maybe in other disciplines and neighboring disciplines who were at the absolute, you know, apex of their field who were going to grow and to be, you know, many of whom would grow into be leaders in the field. And then, of course, when I was coming out to deciding the school, the fact that Duke had a really great basketball team was also something that, that was a motivating factor for me because I love basketball. And that's one of your hobbies. We'll come back to that a little later on. Okay, so did you finish your PhD at Duke? Then where did you go? Then I went, so I took a postdoc. I got a postdoc with Andy Hamilton. He's a physical organic and bioorganic chemist. And he was at Yale when I applied to him. He was at Yale. And so... I moved up to Yale for a year, but then in the intervening period, he was hired to move to the University of Oxford. He's in administration too, so actually he was the provost at Yale, and then he got hired as the vice chancellor of Oxford, which is pretty sweet. That's the top academic post. Chancellor is more of like just sort of an honorary role that they give to to a noble. And so, so I spent one year at Yale, and then I got to go to Oxford and spend two years there in, in the UK, which was amazing. And so that whole transition took you east, 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 east. And you finished your postdoc with Andy Hamilton, and then where did you go? Uh, then I got an academic position back in the States. So I, I wanted to get back to the States, start an independent career, and I was really lucky. I got a job at Northern Illinois University, which is uh, in DeKalb, Illinois, about an hour west of Chicago. And I moved there in 2011. Things were, yeah, so sort of to bring it up to, I guess, me, me getting to Ryerson. In short order, I was at uh, NIU for four years. And then I met my wife, who wasn't my wife then. She was just my girlfriend, and she's from Toronto. We wanted to get married and start our lives together. And so I left my very cushy tenure-track position at Northern Illinois University to uh, be unemployed in Toronto when I first moved here. And I figured and I just to figure it out. Yeah, and the giggling that, that, that you hear in the background for our listeners is the fact that, you know, that you're making, you've, you've invested so much into this career at this point. And then you're like, well... I'm in love and you just pack and put it all aside and then <laughs> move. Like it's so free spirited. Were you super concerned or did you always know that was the right thing to do? And I guess I know the answer. <laughs> or yeah. I know what you should say. <laughs> well, so, I mean, the, the answer is it felt like it, it was very obvious to me that it was the right thing to do. It doesn't, free spirit is an interesting description of it because you're right. Like, you know, one could take the perception that it was, but it seemed to me like really the only logical decision. You know, I made every decision in my life to that point for my career. Family is really super important to me. You know, when I met my wife, I, I really, I knew that I want to be with her, that this was the person I wanted to make a family with and be with. And so, and, and I had Canadian citizenship through my mom. She's a lawyer here and her whole family's here and she couldn't, easily moved to America. So it was really a no-brainer, like just to make it work sort of for the, you know, if I started thinking of us as a family unit, the thing that made sense for the family, which was was for me to move here. And it was nerve-wracking, like the idea of walking away from a tenure-track position, but it wasn't, it honestly wasn't a hard decision. It really wasn't. And that for anyone who's in academia or understands what it takes to get a job like this that we have, which we're very lucky to have, it's a really amazing job. It's kind of crazy, the idea that you work so hard and then walk away from it. I understand that. And I it was for me too, but it wasn't, it really wasn't a hard decision to be honest with you. Oh, that's awesome. I mean, when you prioritize family like that, then it's, it's bound not to be right. And, uh, yeah. uh, it's been an awesome run so far for you and you, you put in your time, you waited. And when, I, I love the story part of the story because where there's a will, there's always a way. And you started Ryerson in 2018, 2017, 2017. Yeah. And so it's been almost three years. Yeah, glorious wow. years, and we're and we're glad that that romance and love brought you our way because we love having you here too. 
Me too. Okay, so tell us, tell us about your, your research program and what you're doing here at Ryerson. So the focus of our research, you know, I'm really interested in organosilicon compounds. So organic molecules, that is, for those of you who are like uh, chemistry experts, molecules that, are, that contain carbon, but also the ones that we're interested in mostly, for the most part, contain silicon as well. And I think that, you know, these molecules, they are, they have been studied for a very long time in chemistry, but I, I think that there is a lot of utility and a lot of potential applications of these molecules that have not been explored to the degree that they should be. I think there's a lot of promise in them. And so my group is looking into these types of molecules for various applications, mostly revolving around creating new synthetic methods, so new ways to make molecules, new ways to transform certain types of molecules into other types of molecules, which could mean making new drugs, making new sensors, making new materials related to energy, making new polymers, whatever, really. That's the main focus of what we're doing. And then also, I, I have um, a lot of experience and keen interest in developing biologically active molecules. And so these, I haven't merged the two interests yet, and maybe at some point we will get into silicon-containing bioactive molecules. But for now, there's sort of two distinct interests that I have. Very cool. Okay, so when you're looking to recruit students, what are you looking for in those students when they first come to you and say, hey, Dr. Adler, I was interested in your research. And then where does, what are you looking for when, you, when those people come to visit you? Number one thing I'm looking for is like a keenness and a curiosity. Someone who comes to me, who wants to do research because they're interested in learning or interested in doing or interested in getting involved. You know, I want someone who's going to be a really active participant. For me, you know, given my history as a student, uh, you might imagine, like, I don't put a huge emphasis on GPA. I think that there are really capable researchers with low GPAs and really poor researchers with high GPAs and also really capable re researchers with high GPAs and really poor researchers with low GPAs. I, I think there's almost no correlation between GPA and not only prospects as a researcher, but also sort of long-term prospects as a contributor too. I don't think there's like high correlation because there's so many factors and particularly with our student body, right? Our, student, our students deal, many of our students deal with so many factors outside of the classroom that could affect their GPA. And so that's not yeah, something like, I place a huge emphasis on. No, and for sure. And like commuting, social economic disparities, there's all sorts of things that happen at, at people's fronts, other people's fronts that really can affect their grades, which would still make them a very, very good graduate student um, if they were given the opportunity. So that's fantastic. When you think about your the students that, that do go through your lab, what transferable skills would you like them to have when they graduate? The number one thing I want to pass on to my students is confidence. Honestly, I think that's the most important thing that we can give our students is support and confidence. And, and that means me having confidence in them and pushing them to show themselves what they can do. And then also making sure that that confidence that I have in them becomes their confidence in themselves. I think that's a really powerful thing. And so by, and by pushing someone and showing them what they can achieve, that can lead them to and not pushing like, you know, my, my students will probably say that I'm a pushover. So, you know, maybe I'm not very good at pushing my students. But, but I think challenging them, challenging them, I think, okay. and showing exactly. them that they can overcome that challenge, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so what do you like best about your job? I love interacting with students and helping them. I love the people part of my job. Actually, not just interacting with students. I even love like collaborating and talking with colleagues. I, I really like the fact that my job lets me interact with lots of different people 
and make an impact on people in various ways. And, and particularly, so going back to the students thing, actually, I, I really appreciate that in our job, we have the opportunity to be um, influential to people at a very a crucial time in their emotional development. And I think that we have the opportunity to make a hugely positive impact on students. Um, and I do not take that for granted at all. I really recognize what an opportunity that is and, and take it very seriously and understand that what we say to them has a tremendous impact on them. Yeah, no, and they're, they're, they're not a blank canvas, but they're a canvas that has, a, has no borders at this point. And so we, we get to really expand those borders. Okay, so what do you like least about your job? The bureau, all the bureaucratic stuff and grading and assigning grades and coming up with assessments. Anything that has to, anything that's like, anything that has to do with like formality or organization, those, those are sort of the boring parts. Being part of a university, it's a big entity. So, I mean, we probably have less of these tedious things to do in our job than someone who works at, I don't know, maybe IBM or something like that. And, those, and, that's, and that's very consistent, right? Because the bureaucracy essentially dehumanizes people and treats everybody like the identical widget, right? And uh, that's something that you value is creating different and unique humans and helping them become who they are. Yeah. So, yeah. What inspires you the most about your job then? I mean, I would say, you know, I think the students, again, it's kind of repetitive and boring, but that's what gets me excited. That's the thing that gets me like the most fired up is when I'm a student who does something great, who achieves something, a student who comes to me with an idea that like I'd never thought of before, a student who takes an initiative to do something impactful, either research-wise or otherwise. I find that to be really inspirational. Cool presentations at conferences or neat papers come out from labs from people I know. Those, I find that to be inspirational as well. Awesome. Okay, so let's uh, let's go to the rapid fire stuff, and uh, they can be quick answers or or not, depending on what what you want uh, to do. Now, I'm going to start with a new question that I've never done on the pod. What is your favorite movie? Ooh, Darjeeling Limited, Wes Anderson. I love Wes Anderson movies, and and Ashley, my wife, I made the mistake of letting her watch one uh, that I'd never even seen before. It was Moonrise Kingdom, and we watched it in standard definition on her crappy TV, so you didn't even get the impact of like his his super cool visuals, and now she hates Wes Anderson. She's like, this is oh, stupid, no. there's kids acting like adults, and I don't get it. And I'm like, oh no, please, I'm like, please watch Royal Tenenbaums with me or Darjeeling Limited, like just give it a shot. Yeah, it's quirky and I like it too. Wes Anderson does some really, really cool stuff. That's good. Awesome question. Okay, so what factoid do my colleagues know least about me? So yeah, so last time we talked, I told you that the factoid was that my wife is pregnant. So I guess I'll repeat that because now it's even closer to the two days. She's, we're expecting a baby boy in August. And because we haven't been on campus, I haven't really been interacting informally with so many people. So I don't know how many of, how many of our colleagues know that. So for our colleagues, listeners, they're going to hear it, hear it first here on the pod, which is awesome. Yeah. And, for you, and for you and, and Ashley and, and your daughter, who will now have a baby brother, that'll be a cool little, little family. Are you, are you going to stop at four or two people or are you going to keep on going? What's your ideal family size? Uh, TBD, you know, like two, I, grew yeah. up, I grew up in a family with two kids. So I just have an older sister. Uh, my wife comes from a family of five kids. You know, I'd say somewhere between two and five. Probably. We always say, when people, ask, when, when, people ask, when people ask our standard answer, we always say, we're going to have as many kids as we can. But that's like, you know, that actually means nothing because can, you know, like, what does that mean? Like we could, can could mean physical limitations or it could mean mental or emotional limitations too. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll just uh, take, it, take it one thing at a time. And also, you know, it's not, it's not trivial. A lot of people have trouble conceiving, particularly um, potential mothers get older and older. So we're very lucky 
we recognize how lucky we are to have a kid, a healthy kid, and another one on the way, hopefully. And we'll see. We're lucky enough and want to have more, then we'll give it a go. We'll see. Excellent. Okay, so what is your favorite food? My favorite food, which I eat most frequently, I will stick to the same one I told you last time, which is mayonnaise. Mayonnaise. I love, <laughs> I love mayonnaise, yeah. If, What's your actually, where, what do you put it on the most? Like, where do you put the mayonnaise? What what food item do you eat? Oh, you, you clarify that said food item. I was going to say the thing I put it on most is my tongue, but I, now I can't say that because I'm not eating my own tongue. Um, <laughs> I put mayonnaise on, like, you know, like if I'm having a sandwich, mayonnaise goes on. If I if we make like a protein, like a, a piece of fish, sometimes I'll just whip together like spicy mayo. Like I'll just do Dijon mustard and mayonnaise and sriracha, mix it together as a dipping sauce. I never thought sometimes of the sriracha and mayo. That sounds really good. All sometimes, right, so what is... Sometimes I'll have a dish for like just have the mayonnaise. I'll make tuna fish, like tuna fish sandwich or tuna noodles and just, you know, just to be having mayonnaise really. No, I, yeah, I got that. I could see that. All right, mm -hmm. so complete, the, complete this sentence. If I was not a professor at Ryerson, I would like to be... A restaurateur. I would love to, to have a restaurant. I love food. I love eating and also dealing with people, although like in a very different way. I think it's a really tough industry to be in. So it would be kind of a difficult road, but I think it'd be super fun. I enjoy it a lot. So, so you've thought about this. So what would this restaurant look like? Like what is the, what's its niche? Like what's it, what's it, what's the name of this restaurant in your head? I've never really thought out a, a scenario where I'm not a chemist or not a professor and just have a restaurant. So I haven't exactly thought of what you've described, but I've thought about opening various eateries and I'm trying to convince Ashley that this is a good retirement plan. So I have two possible options, I'll tell you. One is a Mexican food place because there's just not a lot of good Mexican food in Toronto. And I love Mexican food growing up in San Diego. You know what we call Mexican sure. food in San Diego? San Diegan food? <laughs> no, we, no we, just, we just call it food, actually. We just yeah, call it food, food. yeah. <laughs> So like, yeah, I mean, I would eat, like, I would, I would literally eat Mexican food probably six days a week, you know, go and have a burrito for lunch or tacos or whatever. So I'd love to open a Mexican place. But my other idea, which I think is, is a good one, maybe I shouldn't say this on a podcast with uh, your extensive audience, but I want to open a shop that does soup. They have like a few different soups and some fresh baked, two fresh baked breads and like really super simple menu. And it would be like a serving, like one serving size, the same price for everything. And you get like a soup and a piece of bread. And it's like, you know, enough for a lunch and you have like three, four soups, I don't know. And then in the summertime or maybe year round, we'd have both, but we'd also have frozen yogurt. And it'd be like a small, like mom and pop frozen yogurt, like delicious homemade stuff. And then like in the hot, when it's hot, you can ramp up the frozen yogurt and kind of scale down the soup. And then when it's cold, you ramp up the soup and kind of scale down the frozen yogurt a little bit. And I think you can have a pretty nice. You know, it's like a modest kind of place. You're not going to make a million dollars running a cooking company. Just so you know, I have always thought about having my own little restaurant, and it would have been a soup with fresh bread type place. So you and I will have to have this conversation and 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 really think this through. And I actually think that you should call your restaurant Sauce because you love mayonnaise and you mm -hmm. like. If you think about Mexican food too. It's all about the sauces. Like that really mm -hmm. bring out the flavor. And so I do sauce. like sauces. I like, I'm a dipper. I'm a dipper. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll get, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll work this out later. Okay. What okay. famous person current or otherwise, would you most like to go with dinner with and why? I would like to have dinner with Barack Obama. It's maybe slightly political for me to say that. And I don't, 
necessarily mean it as a political statement, although I find myself in agreement with his political stances more times than not. But I think he's just such a inspirational and admirable and intelligent and interesting person. I think he would be a really neat person to have to have a meal with. Yeah, and I think if you host him at your restaurant, and also we found out that Rob Botello also wants to go to dinner with Obama, then maybe yeah. you could arrange that in your someday in your restaurant. Okay, so Wait, if, what, hold on, if the price if the price I have to pay to have dinner with Obama is to have dinner with Rob, I'm not sure that I'm willing to do that. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, Rob. Just, just kidding, kidding Rob. Rob. Just kidding, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is your uh, favorite color? I like I like colors. Like in, in Southern California, we have lots of colors. I, I've had various favorite colors, you know, depending on the day of the week, basically. I like I like yellow now and green, both yellow and green. I'm into right now, but you know, I, I like blue and purple and pink. I like I like colors actually. I th- I think Rob Botello also said rainbow as his color. So it sounds like you and Rob would have wow. would, would, would would really share in colors as well, not just who you're dining with. Okay, so kindred uh, spirits. Kindred spirits. What would you say is your greatest failure so far in life? You know, I was I was part of a startup uh, before I came to Ryerson. Actually, I was part of a startup. Actually, we were still doing the startup when I, right when I started at Ryerson. But I was part of a startup, and it ended up failing not for scientific reasons, but because of. Um, sort of personnel issues, problems we had in, with, the, with the leadership of the company. And that was that felt like a pretty big failure at the time. That was really disappointing that that didn't work out. And I think that, you know, we had, a, we had, we had some successes and it was a really fun endeavor, actually. And I thought we could actually make an impact on human health with some of the things we were doing. And unfortunately, you know, other things get in the way and, and the company ceased to exist. So I feel like that was a failure and I, I look forward to hopefully, you know, I'd love to start a company and have it be successful and impactful at some point in the future. Like a to restaurant? Sort of, uh, <laughs> well, that wasn't the kind of company I was thinking, but we could do that we too. Could also, we could do that too. We could also have a brewery in your restaurant if you really want to do chemistry too. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking out loud. I, I'm still, you got my, my mind really focused on this right now. <laughs> All right. So what is the, what Oh no, wait, getting, getting your mind focused on something uh, is a dangerous thing. Actually, it, that means things yeah. start to happen. Yeah. Things start to happen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what, what, uh, actually let's go back to your, to your favorite role model. Cause I always love this story. Yeah. So who is your favorite role model and why? My role model is my dad. You know, he's not a scientist. He's a lawyer. And I used to always joke that I went into science because I just wanted to do something that my dad that, that my dad didn't do, so he couldn't give me advice about it, which is really a, a very bad joke because I have a, a great relationship with my father, and I call him and ask his advice all the time, and he gives me really excellent advice, even though he knows less science than than our first year incoming students probably. But he, yeah, he was influential in, in the direction of my life. I, like I said, I, we have a great relationship. And, you know, he was like a stern father, but a very kind father. And, and we had a great relationship. We have a great relationship. We always had a great relationship. And he was never really that hard on me um, in terms of, like, pushing me um, in school or anything like that. But then, you know, one of the other, one of the things that led me then to get the position as a researcher um, that then changed my life academically. There was another thing that happened just before that, actually, that really started to sway, change my perspective on schooling and really motivate me to excel a bit more 
and not not just waste away and not just squalor the opportunities that I have at Berkeley. And that was, my dad told me, you know, he expressed his great displeasure to me when I got an exam back my second year and just basically said that, you know, he was disappointed because I was being lazy and there was nothing worse in the world than, than wasted talent. And he hates nothing more than he hates laziness. And like my dad had never really spoken to me like that before. And it really made an impact on me. And it, caused me to sit back and reevaluate what, you know, what I wanted to do with myself and my life and the talent that I did have, whatever talents I had, um, I wanted to make the most of them. And so that was something that really changed my trajectory as well. Yeah. Real turning point. That's awesome. Uh, mm -hmm. What would you say, what would you say are you, I think I know the answer to this. What are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for family and family, first the family I was born with. I think, you know, part of that thing that I was saying about giving confidence to students and how important that is, I'm really lucky. I had, I have an extremely supportive family. My parents, I talk to them frequently. They're still in San Diego. We talk now with the pandemic. I talk to them basically every day and they always believed in me and supported me and gave me confidence. And I, I think that's a huge part of why I, I've been able to do the things that I've been able to do. So I feel really lucky. And not everyone's born with that. So that's why I say I like to try to provide that to my students. Even if they have it, it's good to get them more. If they don't have it, it's all the more important. So I feel very lucky and grateful for that. And then also grateful for the family that I'm building and my wife and uh, the baby that's born, the baby that's on the way, because it didn't have to be this way. Uh, I didn't have to meet my wife in the way that we did and didn't have to work out. And I didn't have to be so lucky to, to get the job at Ryerson, the job that I, my dream job when I came to Toronto, the one I actually wanted more than anything else. And I feel very grateful for all those things. Awesome. And uh, where do you, I, I think I know the answer to this, where do you, what spot in the world do you most like traveling to? So I most like traveling, like habitually, I love going home. I love going to San Diego and seeing my friends and just feeling like everyone does. Well, everyone, if you're lucky and you enjoyed your childhood feeling just sort of back in, yeah. you know, sort of nostalgic and, and environment that you love. In terms of the kinds of places that I like to travel to, I really like going, my wife and I like going places where we can uh, go wine tasting and be in the outdoors, like ride a bike, riding a bike between wine tastings at various vineyards in Niagara or Napa Valley. Those are, those are our favorite kinds of vacations, our favorite places to go. Awesome. Uh, that sounds amazing. The bike ride. I, oh, you just make me want to do that right now. We weren't in a COVID situation. Mm -hmm. Only if we weren't. All right. So what, what, what would you say is one of the things in the top 10 of your bucket list? I would like to travel to Japan. That's in the top. I, I don't keep like a formal bucket list. I don't even know what else would be in my bucket list. But that's something I want to do that I've wanted to do for a while and haven't gotten yet to do. Yeah, I think yeah. Japan would be cool. <laughs> and they have like a mayonnaise-like sauce that you can put on everything that would be very tasty. <laughs> oh nice. <laughs> have you been to Japan? No, I have not, but uh but I it's on my to-do list as well. What is the most productive time of day for you? I think I'm most productive in the mornings. Either either early in the morning. I'm not great at getting up early because I stay up too late, but when I do get up early I find myself to be very productive. Or also very late at night. In the evenings, you know, after a day you start to get tired. I get tired, but then if I push through, if I stay up, you know, if I can stay doing something until like 11, 11.30, 12, around then I start to catch a second wind. And I've had like lots of times where I've been super productive between like midnight and 4 a.m., you know, just grinding away at something. Awesome. Not something I regularly do though, I would say. Yeah, I, I couldn't do that. That would be exhausting. I would be broke the next day. What is your, I, I know the answer to this too, because you kind of alluded to it earlier. What is your favorite hobby? 
I love basketball. So I watch basketball. I play basketball. I'd say it's my favorite uh, hobby. I like, I like sports in general, but basketball is my favorite, I would say. And I don't know if family counts as a hobby, but I spend a lot of my free time with family. So maybe that's another hobby I throw in there. Why you already counted that in the Hale family discussion. So basketball is the right answer, I think, in terms of what we were looking for. And I know you love True. basketball. Do you have a favorite, favorite raptor? A favorite raptor? Yeah. I think, you know, I, I have an affinity for Norm Powell because Norm's from San Diego too. So I'm a big Norm Powell fan. And I, you know, he was playing great this year. And then uh, I was really excited to see you know, how he was going to compete. He'd had a, a couple of health issues. So anyway, I like Norm Powell. I like a bunch of the guys, though. I like, you know, obviously, Lowry and Seacom being the stars. Gasol and Bleed is great. His story is great. He said, you know, bet on yourself. I very much identify with that sentiment. So and Norm, the San Diego guy, like Norm was the first jersey I bought, the first Raptors jersey I got. Actually, I didn't buy it. I won it for my friend, who's a San Francisco guy, and he was a Warriors fan. So we made a bet on the finals last year, and then he had to buy me a Norm Powell jersey. Nice. Well done. Yeah. Victor, mm-hmm. Twice won. Twice a, twice a win. All right. So what, um, yeah. what, what piece of advice would you give your second year self? Yeah, second year undergrad. You know, the advice I needed as a second year student was the advice that I got from my dad, which is really not to be lazy, to not let opportunities go to waste. Really just take advantage of the things that are placed in front of you. When you're at a university, there's so many things you have an opportunity to do. I wasn't very involved in on-campus things when I was an undergraduate, but at Ryerson, there's just so much stuff. Obviously, the SDV is like a great thing, and you guys put on so much programming for students, for everyone. They can get involved there. They can get involved in science societies. They can get involved in research labs, even like getting involved, just going on Twitter and getting involved in communities and meeting people. Just, I would say, try to take advantage of the opportunities you have. And that's and that's fantastic advice, and it's very and it's good that your dad gave you that advice because, like you said, it was a big turning point in your own life. Say one other thing, though. Hold on, I just want to say one other thing. A piece of advice that I just thought of too, and I think it's important to say to whatever to whoever might be listening to this. I would say don't let fear limit you. And and I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. You know, you might think some researcher. You know, you read a paper if you're an undergraduate, and you see a paper, and you think, wow, that paper is super cool. Like, I would love to work on something like this. Or you see someone on Twitter who you think is really interesting. Or you see someone who you think might be a neat person. You want to get to know that person better. Like, go just make, take the first step. Write that person an email. Tweet at them online. Go walk up to the person to see them in person. Like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Somebody rushes you aside or somebody rejects you? Well, that's not a, that's not a condemnation of you. That's, that's a condemnation of that person who's not open-minded enough to receive you. Uh, but the possible gains are, are great. So I would say don't, don't be fearful. Be, be bold. Be bold. Be bold. And I like that. And so for those of us, we hinted at it a couple times, but this is the second time Mark is doing this podcast because the first time I didn't hit record on the record button. So, um, And I do really appreciate you taking the time to do this again, even though many of the questions were the same. And to be bold is the way I think of you as well because you take those steps that most people wouldn't. And it's been very rewarding for you. And I, I'm very pleased to, to see how your life continues to unfold as we go, go down the road, because that boldness has paid off and, and I expect it will again from time to time. 
thank we could do this we could do this all day but thank you again for uh spending another hour with us and away from your family you're in the backyard so i can hear them in the background occasionally uh, so go back to them and, and enjoy your your weather and we'll catch up to you really soon all right thanks brian thanks for having me on thank you take care and have a great day mark you too bye, bye.